Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We are still continuing in the book, Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. We are now going to be going into Chapter 4, The Heart, Finding Your Unique Aliveness. First thing that I want to start out on is actually on page 125, uh, in which it talks about a poem. I'm going to read the poem and then we're going to uh, discuss it a little bit. Uh, It says, it's called I. It says, the color of my consciousness made the emerald green and the ruby red. I gazed at the sky and the light dazzled in the east and the west. I turned to the rose and exclaimed, it's beautiful and beautiful it became. You say it's philosophy, not a poetic composition. I say it's truth, and that makes it poetry. This is my proud claim, pride on behalf of the whole of humanity, that only on the canvas of the human ego is drawn the artistic masterpiece of the universe. The philosophers are negating existence in every breath, muttering no, 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 not emerald, not ruby, not light, not rose, nor I, nor you. Meanwhile, The limitless one is exploring itself within the limits of humanity. That's called I, excerpted from Shyamoli, 1936. Um, I really like this poem because it it really, for me, um, it's kind of like what gives things its property. And it's kind of going back to the preface a little bit when it's discussing, uh, you know, what when is a tree a table kind of thing? It's like, what makes something beautiful? Um, and so I really enjoyed this poem. Um, I'd love for you to, uh, to uh, talk about it a little bit as well. So this poem I really like because it's rebelling against a very powerful philosophical position. So, the Indian philosophical system has many, many different positions. And one of the very popular ones, or one of the, uh, how should I put it? Not that many, you know, not that everybody necessarily follows it, but but it is profoundly deep. It's called the non-dual position. And the non-dual position goes something like this, that what you're seeing in front of you doesn't really exist. It's It's an illusion created by the mind, which by the way itself doesn't have much reality. Now, ancient uh, Indian philosophy basically basically brings this position out and has a whole way of life based on this position. Now, this is something that Tagore is rebelling against. And he's rebelling without rejecting it. Completely, he's He's saying there's something there. There's something very profoundly meaningful. But by saying that, you know, by saying that what you're seeing in front of you is unreal, we're kind of missing the whole point. And and Tagore is saying that, hey, if you were just everything, if you're atoms and molecules, which our science today confirms, look at anything deep enough and you'll find it's just atoms vibrating a little bit differently. Well, yes, that's that's correct but there's no meaning in it. And for meaning, you have to have limitation. So a rose, if a a rose says, I don't like the idea of being contained in a particular form, 
particular shape and a particular color, well then you can't call it a rose, right? And the fact that we recognize a rose is because it conforms to a limited form. And that is what makes a rose beautiful, right? And, and so also with an emerald and a ruby, these are all distinctions. And at the end of the day, they're all the same atoms vibrating just a little bit differently. But the fact that they are precisely different have a particular form, that is what allows us to name it. That is what allows us to find beauty in it and meaning in it. So this is a pretty dramatic rebellion that Tagore is saying, or Tagore is bringing out, saying that if you if you are interested in beauty, then you have to go beyond this position of non-duality and realize something even more important. And, and by the way, he's not negating non-duality. He's saying that the one, uh, you know, if you look at the, the last line of the poem, the limitless one is exploring itself within the limits of humanity. That's called I. And, and that's such a beautiful poetic lens on it. Like if, if all we are is a product of confused conditioning, is there any meaning to this life? And he's saying, yes, it is. This, this limitless essence that makes our life possible is trying to figure it out within a very narrow, limited boundary. At once, it profoundly alters our own sense of boundaries and it also profoundly alters how we see meaning. It's that, oh, you're trying to understand your limitlessness through very narrow limitations. That's what we are all here trying to experience. That's, that's what Tagore is opening up for us. Mm. Yeah, and, and it says um, on the bottom of 125, the human limit is, a, is precisely what makes life and work meaningful. The finiteness of things is what gives everything meaning. If we all lived forever, would we value our relationships with each other? If this world was the same as it always was, would we need any reverence for fragile ecosystems that sustain life? Um, and, and, and so true, it's kind of like humanity has a almost, I, I wouldn't quite say obsession, but we, we talk about um, immortality, we talk about living forever, talk about cryogenics, talk about um, different ways in which we can like upload our consciousness. Like humanity is trying to find a way to, to live on, to keep on going. And really it's kind of like, but why though? You know, because you'll, because a lot of human beings will find that they are not living um, a life that, or, or say working a job that, really speaks to their inner spirit. It's very interesting to me. On uh, 126, it says, Tagore's audacious poem celebrating the limited human ego is actually a deep invitation into our heart to understand what makes it cry uniquely, what makes it feel uniquely, what makes it perceive meaning uniquely. And um, I know we're going to be getting more into this chapter, but what I, I, I love about it is that it starts to discuss how each person needs to look within um, on what gives, what basically makes their heart sing, and everyone's singing a different song. Um, and so that that is part of the reason why um, 
you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving further more into this. Um, on 127, you say that I've identified three specific types of numinous values, each of which must be integrated into our work, the heart value, habit value, and the head value. And in this chapter, we're going to start with the heart. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, even briefly, about the the habit value or the head value before we continue, or we're going to leave that for the future? Well, well, we'll definitely leave that for the future, but I'll just say this. The the heart value is where meaning comes from. The habit value is where your superpower comes from. And the head value is perhaps the most important one to find. Uh, all three are very important, but the head value is the crucible in which your work, your life's work is going to get baked, in which your heart and habit will live. So the head is a container for the heart and the habit. That's how I'm, I'm framing this. Okay, excellent. That's good to know. <laughs> um, so on 128, you say, um, uh, second paragraph, mapping your heart value can give you a powerful pointer for where to direct your creative energy. The mapping conversation is an intimate dialogue with yourself. Its intention is to discover your unique aliveness. You will need to create a space that allows you to safely be yourself with yourself. That already sounds quite daunting. It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so already, uh, you know, even about mapping the heart value. Um, so it, uh, what would you ta say to someone uh, with that response when they're like, okay, this sounds like it's already going to be a lot of work. <laughs> well, if, if we can't stand ourselves, we've got a big problem, don't you think? All I'm that's, saying that's is true, right? If you want to, if you want to be okay with yourself, you have to first know who you truly are and what makes you tick. And for that, you know, we, we talk. You think about relationships, right? We say if you want to get to know somebody, you got to spend time with them. Well, then, are you spending time with yourself? And what does that look like? And it might be different for each person. Some people will spend time with themselves in solitary walks, introspecting. Some people will have a sitting practice, meditation practice. Some people might have a journaling practice. And still others might need to discover themselves with the help of friends, saying, hey, could you be a listener for me? Could you draw myself out of me? And there are some friends, if, you have, if you're lucky to have such friends, that also works. So, so to each their own in, in how they want to spend time with themselves. But you better get to know yourself. Right? And for that, you better make time. Otherwise, I don't see how you can. Right? This is, a, this is one of the most important things in our life. You, you, you've only got yourself all the time. Right? You may or may not have others in your life all the time. But you definitely have yourself all the time. So it's not a bad idea to get to know yourself a little bit. <laughs> True. And... Um... You know, you have some suggested questions to kind of start that conversation between the self, uh, yourself and yourself. I'm going to actually read each one of these questions for the people here. And mm -hmm. um, they can pause uh, the podcast and think about it um, as we go through. So uh, number one, reflect on the times you have felt proud about your work. What made you proud? 
Number two, in the arc of your life, reflect on those decisions that were greatly meaningful for you. What was meaningful about them? Number three, if this were your last day on the planet, what contribution through your work, if accomplished, would give you a sense of completion? Conversely, what work, if not moved forward, would give you a sense of regret on your last day? Number four, what makes you really sad or angry about the world enough that you would want to be the change through your work? Number five, reflect on the times you have felt stuck in your work. What was missing that made you feel stuck? What got you unstuck? Number six, reflect on the times you have gotten a thrill of joy through work. What was the thrill about? Number seven, if you have not yet started out in professional work, reflect on what calls to your heart. What do you see that is sweet and inviting or sad and needs a change? And number eight, when have you felt alive in your life through work? What was that like? Whichever question you pick, use your feelings to navigate where to go and explore. Don't give much importance to intellectual frameworks. Instead, give primacy to the feelings that arise in your exploration. One of the things I really liked about these questions, too, is um, you really focused on work. Um, and and I, I know that, you know, ultimately, like, the book is is focusing on work and everything. But... Um, a lot of these questions could be used to just focus on the self, you know, like, oh, if this was your last day on the planet, what would you do? You know, who would you talk to kind of thing? But you brought it back to work, which I've not heard of before. Um, and it's interesting because not only are we having the opportunity to dwell on how our work affects ourself, um, but we're still also exploring the self as well. So I found that very interesting. Um, why do you why do you think these questions should uh, be focused on work and not just self? So I wanted to focus on work because that is where I see the biggest tragedy, where we are we are participating in an interchange of our gifts for compensation. And this is supporting and putting food on the table. This is supporting the well-being of our families, of our own physical health, mental health. And that is such a foundational part of our life. And that is where we make the biggest compromises, right? If you were to follow your heart, would you get fired? Well, I better not follow my heart. I better not even go there because I'm scared if I find out. I will not be able to live in this space, which I call a job. So these are very uh, scary places to be, like, to discover, hey, this is not for me. I, I would rather be there. So, so I want to give some help there because that is really a difficult place to explore. Whereas with personal relationships, there are lots of books, ex excellent books about how to build deeper relationships with each other. And, and a lot of people have made great contributions and particularly in, in America, I think we have, uh, we have that gift to give to the world on how to become better, how to connect with ourselves through relationships. So 
so I felt that space was well covered, but the workspace is problematic because there are so many assumptions that have gone unchallenged. And, and this is my little rebellion that, hey, who told you what you believe? And can we look at that? Can we have a conversation about it? It's definitely a rebellion because you go further in talking about, um, you know, it's important to allow your feelings to arise as they are without adding anything or removing anything. Um, for those who are intellectually oriented and wonder about being biased by emotions, suspend judgment for now. You're, you're, you're basically telling people like, <laughs> like, listen, we are diving into the heart, like suspend judgment, try not to be very heady about it. Like, you are you're asking people to to really challenge um almost like fail safes that people have in place like no i i can't think about this i can't i can't dive into this because i'm almost afraid of what's going to be at the bottom of this well <laughs> yeah 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 um and so you start getting into principles and how to find your unique aliveness we're going to dive into each of these principles. Uh, principle one says externalize, don't internalize. It is truly important to note that you are not trying to internalize any values within yourself. Our goal is the exact opposite, to externalize what is already inside so you and others can be inspired by it. Your endeavor is to listen for gold within you. And so... Uh, I'm going to ask you to um, explain a little more on it, but I, from what I got from it was basically like, if we find what essentially makes our heart sing, um, it's going to manifest itself in an external way. Is, is that kind of where you were going with it? Yeah, that is the work, right? So everybody has a song in their heart, I believe. Or, or let, let me put it that way, whether you believe it or not, I'm inviting people to, to at least start looking for it and see what they find. It, it's possible you will not find anything. But what if you try to find it? What might you find is the question I'm asking. And it's insight. So this is not a lecture that you go listen to somebody because we're trying to see what you have within you that inspires you and ostensibly will inspire other people. So it's, it's not about internalizing anything. It's, it's the opposite. It's like if anybody wants to help you in this conversation, they better shut up and listen extremely deeply. And we are listening our values into existence. That's what we're doing here. Very interesting. Yeah, I, yeah it, it made me think of um, you know, some forms of like activism or causes or, or, so, or someone taking on a cause of sorts. It's almost like, um, you know, when you think of like activism, there are people that it, it at least it seems to me that are like kind of there for the ride. And then there are those that are there for the paycheck. Um, you know, like a, as a former teacher, for example, I've, uh, been told, and I agree very much that the students can recognize on some level whether you're there because you actually care about them or whether you're there for the paycheck. So there's like something to that mm. as far as like the self is, ex, ex, um, 
you know, being manifested outwardly, even though that mm. teacher might be doing their very best to come across to the students like, oh, you know, I'm here for you. On some level, uh, the students can feel that you're not, which is very interesting mm. to me. Mm. And, and again, it also goes to causes. It seems as if um, if something is really important to you, you will instinctively gravitate toward whatever that cause is. You might not be out there, you know, picketing or, or protesting or whatever, but it will be something in you that, that just, just comes out. Um, so like a quick story, <laughs> a quick example, uh, when I was a teenager, I worked for Blockbuster for anyone that <laughs> knows what that is, that's mm. a video, video store. And I remember, um, they they would have these promotions in which you would get a sales commission uh, if you sell to the customer. So the, the incentive is basically like, okay, sell this product or this program to the customer and you as the employee are going to get a cut. So that should be incentive enough, right? Well, I remember there were certain programs where I was like, I, I, I this program is going to hurt the customer. So I would actually tell people like, um, you know, I shouldn't be saying this. I really shouldn't because this is my job. But uh, instead of buying this movie here through this program, like you could literally go across the street and get it for like $10 cheaper. Like I, I really shouldn't be taking money away from Blockbuster, but like I, (laughs) but I'm like, like, I literally could not do it. Like my heart would not allow me, but at the same time, I remember this program called a movie pass came out and it was basically like you pay a flat free flat fee and you get to rent as many movies as you want during that month. Like some movie theaters do this now. Um, and I was all for it. I was like, you're getting a great deal. I would be selling it. I was, I was like, you know, at my, even though that we're talking about a job and we're talking about selling products, when it came to the movie pass, that's when my heart came alive. When it came to the promotions of buying the movie and it was still like you're not saving anything, my heart was like, no, you can't do that. And so I guess it's about finding those moments in a way uh, in your work. I think, I think that's a really good story because that's a, that's a very big hint that when you truly believe in something, you will be the world's best salesman for whatever it is. And no amount of sales training is needed. And when you don't believe in something, that's when even the best training in the world won't help you sell very much. You, you, you can ask any salesperson that. <laughs> the, the best ones don't try to sell you. In fact, I remember somebody was telling me, you know, in a, in a past life, I, w- I would be in these con- uh, conference exhibitions trying to sell the product I was building. And this expert salesman told, I asked him, hey, how, once I've explained it to somebody and they don't, they don't show that much interest, what do I do next? I said, nothing. Because if they don't, if they haven't seen the value after you have shared it, you, you just do nothing because there's nothing to be done. <laughs> the product itself, either it's, either it's valuable or it's not. And those who truly value it will come. And I never forgot that lesson. You know, that's a that's a really important thing that you you put your heart and soul into something, 
and then you have to let it out into the world and, and see what happens. Kind of like what we're doing with this book, right? It's, you know, there's a certain way in which I want this book to come out to the world and serve people and people, nobody may read it. <laughs> they, may, they, may, they may buy it and just keep it on their shelf and that'll be sad, but that'll be it. But is my heart in it? A hundred percent. hundred percent. Right. It sustains I, um, me. Like, yeah. This conversation sustains me. Yeah, this is really good. And and I'm learning a lot as well. I literally just wrote down uh what you were what you were saying too. I, just, I literally just wrote it down like you don't need to sell the product if you believe in it and you know just things of that nature. Like it's good it, it's good reminders for me uh, especially since you know I have my own things going on when it comes to business. Like regardless of um even if you're working at a job that you love, there's always room for improvement. There's always room for learning. Um, I love that. And it, it kind of goes naturally into the next principle. Uh, principle number two, listen for emotion. Uh, this section really dives into not really just being intellectual about it. Like It's almost like if someone's like um, explaining to you a job. And all the person cares about is, well, how much will I get paid? And it's almost like that numeric value is the only value. When really, we should be also focusing on, well, tell me more about the company. Tell me more about, um, you know, what, what, what's going on with you or what is, I don't know. Like, okay, so like, for example, um, Whenever I go to a job now, like whenever I'm like applying for a job, um, even though I didn't have this principle at the forefront of my mind, like, oh, you know, listen for emotion. Um, I, on some level, I realized like one of the, when they ask you, the employers ask you, like, uh, do you have any questions for me? One of the questions I always ask is what are the biggest challenges at your job? Like what, what are the, the, the problems that you're trying to solve? Because depending on their answer on some level and how they frame the answer, it's not so much about what the answer is. It's about how they frame the answer. So it, it could, they could mention like a huge problem. Like anyone listening to it might be like, oh my goodness, that sounds terrible. But if the person who, especially most of the time you're talking to someone in upper management, if they're framing the answer like, okay, this is the problem. However, that's okay because we have a great team behind us and like, I believe in them and, you know, this is how we tackled it. And like, we really believed in this and they're giving examples. Then I feel th that's almost like the emotion component. I feel even though that problem is there and it might be a big problem. I'm like, you know what? That's okay because as a team, um, we're going to be able to do it. And as a leader, that person is telling me, you know, like, I got you. It's going to be all right. If the person starts dodging the question, oh, or if they say we don't have any problems, that's immediate red flag. And so, <laughs> for me, like, we have no problems here. Like, we're just perfect. I'm like, okay, something, you're hiding something. <laughs> so this is a really good one. You know, it's a, it's actually a pretty juicy comment there. It's very easy for people in this conversation when they're trying to find what's in their heart to go into headspace. So when I do these mapping conversations 
with with friends the you know whenever whenever people say oh you know uh, let me tell you about that book i read and my response immediately is please don't i don't i'm not interested in in what someone else had to say in a book that you read i'm interested in your feelings right now and the reason i say that is because i can feel you know if you are feeling something like you know as you said in your in your story if someone's describing their problems they could describe it in two ways they could describe it intellectually oh yeah you know let me tell you all the little components and parts of the puzzle and this and that or they could describe who they are in relation to that problem that yes it's a gnarly problem but i'm at stake for this it's my problem to solve and i will willingly give my life energy toward this problem and when somebody shows up like that you feel like okay here is an anchor here is a person who i can trust who truly cares about something and if if someone cares that means all the good things that come with work will arrive like quality quality happens not because you have a qa team quality happens because you truly care about how this product is going to show up in the world that's extremely important to understand that quality matters when your heart is awake and if you're looking at it intellectually then you you've checked all the boxes but it's kind of insipid it it it's missing aliveness so in that conversation of what matters to you you know if you think a problem matters to you i'm not listening exactly like you said i'm not listening for the content of the problem i'm listening for your feelings and if i don't feel like if you if you're able to fluently talk you know for instance if i were to ask you what mattered to you julius and you were able to fluently describe it i would be very concerned but i would not be as concerned if you struggled if you were at a loss for words you are emotional some people shake those are the signs i'm looking for that this is real you're you're getting into something that's not intellectual that is truly in your body mm yeah that's very that's very interesting and it and it uh it, it almost well i'll read this part and then i'll say what my what i was thinking um so principle 3 says watch out for fluency a natural corollary to emotion is the loss of fluency it is important to watch out for fluency in response to the question what does it mean to have this value fulfilled if you find yourself fluently able to articulate what it means chances are you're not there yet it may need to try again if you're truly allowing yourself to feel it should get really hard for you to express your feelings in words and be fluent um what i was thinking funny enough when you were mentioning the fluency was i was thinking of past examples of when i felt as if i was quote unquote in love um <laughs> people would basically ask me like oh how do you feel about that person and i remember a couple examples in which i was like 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 oh like what do you like about that person and for the relationships that funny enough didn't turn out so great i remember being like oh this person is like oh like they're strong they're this they're that like i'm like i'm listing off character traits um but for the relationships in which i was like almost enraptured within them I, there was that loss of fluency even though i even though i had um in my mind like 
character traits to mention, it was almost like stumbling over my words. So they'd be like, Oh, so what do you like about mm-hmm. that person? I'm like, Oh, oh my goodness. They're um well, I mean, oh my god, they're so they're it's almost like I <laughs> it's like I have the list, but my emotions mm-hmm. are jumbling them up as if they're in like a washing machine. And I'm trying to stop <laughs> the washing machine so I can pick out a piece of clothing, which would be that emotion, that word or that character trait, you know, it's just, it's just like mm. a, a mix. Um, yeah. So that, that was the example that I was thinking of, but <laughs> I don't know if that applies. Well, it's a, uh, as they say, I and mean, people have written books on this, that only love is real and love has become a very corny word in society now. So I'm not talking about Hollywood romances. I'm talking about us truly caring for somebody in a way that you cannot qualify or quantify. That's that's a feeling that's extremely real. You know, there, there are some people who will tell you, I was just reading this uh, passage yesterday with somebody who said, oh, everything is a thought. And if, if there's no reality beyond the thoughts that are accessible to you through language. And I, I profoundly disagree with this. I disagree because there is a realm where thoughts cannot reach. In fact, that principle has the the aphorism, not the aphorism, the um, the quote from the Upanishads. You know, it says there in, in the Sanskrit um, is yato vacho nivartante aprapya manasasaha. Speech and mind turn back after finding this realm of the creative self to be unattainable. That's truly what is at the heart of the matter. You cannot reach that depth within you with your faculty of speech or your faculty of mind. But is it not there? How do you reach it then? Well, with the most natural thing that's available to you, it's through the feeling of creative joy. And that's the next sentence of that poem. So that creative joy in relationships, it is there, but, it, and, and I'm focusing this conversation on work and I'm saying it's the same idea that when you build something beautiful, that is your express expression of creatorship. And that gives you a joy that is indescribable. You're yeah, participating I... you know, in the evolution of the world and in your evolution. Yeah, I was I was literally about to go right to that where it says um, on the bottom of one thirty three, the knower knows the creative self through the feeling of joy, and um, also on the aphorism four point three and four point four on page one thirty four, beware of fluency for it can bypass your heart, feel your creative joy and be greater than your mind. It's almost like you don't need to come up with a list of traits or 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 things to discuss you already know that this is it's almost like you already know this is where you need to be based on the feeling alone um and then principle four says watch out for platitudes aphorism 4.5 4. 4.6 says when platitude you hear confusion is near when your uniqueness you hear value is near and um, there, there is a um, story about Joe. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I, I would love for you to discuss it a little bit. Um, if there's a way that you can um, pare it down a little bit for our readers. 
or our listeners? Sure. This is a pretty common story where people will will take some platitudes about life, like word peace, hunger, poverty, and think that this will give them meaning. And you have to be very careful about such things because the the hardest um, inquiry comes from people who believe they're doing something noble. And, and that's because, you know, you, you, if someone believes that they are not following a life of values, it's easy to go into the inquiry with them because they, they, um, they don't have any false notions around it. But if you truly believe, if you already believe that you're doing something of great service, then, you know, it could, could be true, but it becomes that much harder to find that you, you might not actually be serving what is truly in your heart. And so this story is about that, that this uh, CEO uh, had pointed his organization towards, hey, we're doing all this work in the, in the business side. And uh, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't count so much in terms of doing something for the world. So let's, let's clean ourselves. Let's absolve ourselves of our, you know, uh, daytime sins by doing something about hunger and poverty. He didn't, he didn't quite say it that way, but that's that's kind of my words my interpretation on it exaggerating it a little bit and and th- there's there's something profoundly disturbing about this characterization that i need to do something different from my work for it to count and and so when i pressed this gentleman that look do you really care about hunger and poverty i don't know i mean you're saying you care but you're saying it because other people say that's important I don't feel it. And and at the same time, this person was a genius in, uh, in strategy. If he saw people making bad strategic decisions, he would get very upset because they could do so much better for themselves. And he was there to help. And that was the juice. So I, I told him like, hey, I feel the juice when you, when you see this problem, don't, don't you? I was like, hell yeah. And, and, and so I reframed this as, you don't want to be solving hunger and poverty in the world. You need to help those who are solving those problems by not making bad decisions. You, you become their strategy consultant or maybe create courses for them or, or something, be an educator in that space. But you, are staying, you must stay true to your core. Like this is, this is what actually gives you meaning, people not making poor decisions. And that really resonated. And this is kind of a, a, a common pattern in a lot of people's lives where the grass feels greener on the other side. So we want to take somebody else's motivation and supplant it into our lives. And it doesn't work very well. We have to, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to find our authenticity and say, no, this is what truly gives me meaning. And, and then, there are clever deploying it so it has it's it, it, it's able to serve the world in in diverse ways we'll get we'll get into that space when we look at the head but when we're looking for the heart it's important not to try to be clever not to try to have world peace kind of universal ideas in there it's important to be very specific specific about what truly lights your fire Right. Because, and, and I think that's very important to remember as far as not letting your head 
um, get mixed in with the heart right now because, I mean, for someone who's working with poverty and hunger or say it's homelessness or whatever the cause is, you, if you're already in the mix, you don't want to tell people like, I don't want to work on this anymore. <laughs> people, people are like, really? Like what more noble cause or what, what, what else are you going to do? You want to be selfish and, you know, people might say something like, you know, become a, I don't know, just working with something with just money. Um, but I love this story because it was like, no, I'm still helping with the, the poverty and the hunger problem. It's just, I'm refining it a little bit so that it meets my core better. Um, I love that. And, and that requires people to have hard conversations with themselves. Um, it kind of gets into principle five where it says, start where you are. Um, it says, sometimes people have taken several hard knocks in life and conclude that they are lost. If you're feeling lost, listen carefully to where you really are. Chances are you are already expressing the song of your heart, but are not recognizing it. Aphorism 4.7 says, when you lose your way, listen very intently, for you may have just found it. And I think, I think something that's also very interesting and why this book is important as well is in that story, it required, it's almost like sometimes we're so muddled with our thoughts and our emotions and what's going on with us. We can't see uh, the forest beyond the trees in front of us. We can't, it's almost like we need a guide or we need someone to just ask us a few questions. This is why um, I'm also an advocate for therapy. Uh, for you know, especially for those that need it, um, it's, it's sometimes the answers are lying within you. It just requires someone to ask the right questions, or for you to ask the right questions to yourself, and suddenly it becomes more and more clear. And eventually, you will be drawn to, um, you know, what what excites you and what gives you passion and joy, um. And so, yeah, the, the answers seem to lie uh, very much within you. Would you would you say that, do, can you think of any examples in which like the answers may not lie within when it comes to the heart? Well, sometimes, you know, people have um, numbness or difficulty connecting with their feelings. And in, when that happens, then it's really hard, you know, and, and there are various reasons why this could happen. It's, there's a lot of social conditioning, which tells us stay away from emotion. And some people have very, very overactive minds. And, and then it becomes very difficult because they just refuse to still their mind to, to be in the conversation, to connect with their feelings. If that happens, then you, it's very difficult. And then the then the answer might be, this is not the right time for the conversation. Go do what you think you need to do. And when you feel you're ready to explore yourself, come back, right? And, and maybe there are other life experiences that need to be had before one can engage in this intimate conversation. This is not for everybody. This is only for those who truly want to know what they stand for, right? This is not a conversation where uh, you can just say, hey, uh, let's talk about what's in your heart. No, it doesn't work like that, right? I, I don't talk like this with people all day long. If I bump into you, 
I'm not listening for your heart values. This is, this is a very difficult and sacred conversation. I have to set up the space if I'm to support you in, in listening in that way. I have to clean my own cobwebs and, and then listen without any agenda. And then I can support someone in discovering this. It's, it's special. It's a very special way of listening. And that, yeah, that, and that takes, that takes a lot of, um, that takes a lot of work, um, depending on where people are in life, um, and how much that they actually know them themselves. Um, it says like these principles can help you find your heart value. Test one, it takes work to make it happen. The heart value is not something that is effortless to bring out. It takes blood and sweat and a lot of work. Check whether the heart value is a behavior that is inherent in you or something that you have to strive toward. Um, that first test uh, is very interesting because, you know, even as a young child, we are told um, often by our parents what our life path should be. Or even if we talk about, um, you know, the American dream, you, you know, supposed to... Uh, you know, graduate high school, go to college, get get the house with the picket fence, the two point five kids with the dog, and the you know, like that is your path. That is what you have to do. Um, but for some people, that might not be their path. That might not be what what actually you know makes them passionate. Uh, for example, um, test two says triangulate with life decisions. Think about key decisions in your life. Describe them. To someone or write them down. If you went against your heart value, you should be able to recall descending into frustration and sadness. If you went with your heart value, you should be able to recall accompanying stories of aliveness and joy, regardless of the financial outcomes. Ooh, now that, that's a tough one. Um, would you say that that same test would apply to even things that aren't financial? Absolutely. The, the nonprofit version of this is impact, right? You're beaten on the head to have impact with your work. And that's fine. I mean, it's, it's a way of accounting. But did you really feel alive doing the work? That's the yardstick that this is about. You know, with your action. By the way, we, we missed talking about the last principle, which is to contextualize this in action. So it's not about, you know, people might say, oh, I want to come alive and work. Well, that doesn't help you. That's like, <laughs> you're exactly where you, you were before this conversation. The key thing is, how do you see yourself coming alive? In what kind of work? And once you figure that out, then the test is, well, if you're doing that work, you, you don't need a reward. I mean, of course, we're not talking about being manipulated into accepting lower compensation than what the market should be giving you. That's a different deal. But just the fact that you're doing that which makes you come alive, a teacher of mine say you're embarrassed to draw a paycheck because it's so amazing that you get to do this work. That feeling is very special. I wish it upon everyone. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and then test three says, listen for your reverence. Listen deeply for reverence for your work. There can be a point in your dialogue with yourself where your commitment to humanity's well-being in a specific way triggers a huge feeling of reverence in you for all of life. It's not an intellectual exercise anymore, but in a live conversation, 
for which there is much gratitude in your heart for your own work. This is a sign that the heart mapping has the juice. Hmm, that's good. Uh, what would be what would be a good example? Um, do you think of uh, reverence for your work? Reverence for your work is to not just see it as step one, step two, step three, but how each step is so important towards what is what is almost like sacred to you. It's like when I'm writing a book, is the book of great quality. Well, there are steps I need to take. Like I need to do proofreading. I need to make sure that all the commas are in the right place. And that's that's a little bit of a chore. But you know, when I read it and I find a misplaced comma and I strike it out with my pen, I feel great about it. It's like my reader will know that I care because or actually, they may not know that I care. That that would be an impacting, right? My reader may not even know, and that's the point because there was nothing that that made them pause and say, "Oh, this this writing isn't copy." It's like uh, you know, sand in my salad you know, while I'm reading it. That feeling of fluency when they're reading, you know, this is already a heavy topic. I owe it to my reader to make it as easy as possible so they can engage without any distraction in the core conversation that's sacred to me even though it's really painful to go read your book the nth time and if you you know if if you're rec recording something it's very painful to listen to your own voice afterward like you can't stand it same thing if you've written something you're almost terrified to read it <laughs> i was like okay no i have to do this i want to do this and it's sacred to me that i will make the time because it's so special it's 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 a part of that coming alive Right. And similarly, if you're writing code, software code, will you go back and read your code because you care? You care that it is so awesome when people see it, they're served deeply by it. And and that's all you can offer, the quality of your attention toward your work. And and there are some things that are so beautifully designed that they make you emotional. Right? It's it's uh, it's sort of going back to that example I gave a couple podcasts back about that windy road in Stanford University. I don't know who did it, but I see the values there and it makes me emotional. It, it, it shows that somebody really cared about life. Even though they're yeah. not around, you, you know, I'll never find out their name, but it's there. It's there and it, it makes me grateful. And I think that's like, that's like um, the beauty of things too, is that everyone has something within them that once it becomes manifest from their heart, it may appeal to different people. So like, for example, there might be people who go down that winding road and they don't feel anything, but yet they might go down a road in which you don't feel anything, but they feel something. And so like, mm -hmm. it's almost like this collective, uh, you know, collective heart, um, that becomes manifest, but it's like there are certain things that we won't be able to know about unless everyone is doing the work to evaluate, you know, what makes their heart sing and actually, you know, put it out there so we can hear that song. Mm. Um, and I think that I think that kind of goes to the the test four, where it says, "Yes, this is me." It says, "Play back your heart mapping to yourself or to a friend and tell the story of your heart value." connecting it with your past experiences. 
if the mapping feels deeply familiar to you and accurately describes what's uniquely in your heart in a way that makes you feel alive, we have moved a lot closer to validity. I think there's a, it kind of goes back to that uh, almost like undeniable feeling like, uh, like, you know, I, I'm a movie buff, for example. So there are times when I'll watch a movie and even if I didn't really enjoy the movie per se, like for the plot or whatever, there'll be times where I'm like, I can tell that the writers and the director put a lot of care into this. This may not be my cup of tea. This may not be mm. my genre, but I respect the care that they placed into the like it's like you can tell it's almost like you, again going back to that that fluency like you you can't exactly put it into words but you can tell <laughs> yeah yeah and um test five says triangulate with conditioning the heart value is often but not always explainable with conditioning life experiences that bring us face to face with injustice condition with injustice, condition us to care for the well-being of others in a in specific ways. It's almost like uh, coming full circle in a, in a sense. Um, yeah, and this uh, one's important. It's a you know, it's it's a good clue that you know that's a pattern I've noticed. Somebody had some pivotal moment in their childhood, or in their growing up years, or in college, and that really shocked them or or made them feel like something was broken and and people tend to gravitate towards things that are broken in order to serve in fixing it in some meaningful way so so, so seeing something that's broken outside gives you a clue into what is broken inside will heal if you do that work so that's a very important space to explore, in my opinion. Yes, I, I feel like that's very, I feel like that's very, very important. Um, and I, I think that also, again, it's 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 like a these tests are good because they almost like go in a line with each other. Because um, I gets to test test six, check for directionality, ensure that your heart value gives you some sense of direction. There should be something specific about work that is indicated without being prescriptive about how that unfolds. This is an important test, and to the extent that you are able to arrive at a heart value that gives you a sense of direction, you will be able to get guidance for important strategic decisions in your life. It's almost like the more, the more you know where your heart is leading you, you're able to dodge certain decisions that may come up later or certain avenues that may come up later because you already know that's not going to align um, with the values of my heart. So why even go in that direction? Hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, a little further down in the, um, on 140, probably about halfway through the paragraph of finding gold says in the boundaries of our body, we feel something that is far beyond those boundaries. This is not supernatural as much as it is super natural. You will feel reverence for your own life, which is the source of the heart value. Your life now stands for something bigger than your limited self. And I think that's a very important um, piece as well, because when you're feeling that joy, um, it does feel larger than life. It almost, it's an emotion that 
almost feels like it is extending beyond um, your body. It's almost like, you know, having like a, an aura or something, <laughs> something of that nature. Um, mm. And a little bit over, you say, if you find yourself getting judgmental, it is best to backtrack and try again. Judgment doesn't, does have a place insofar as you use it to detect whether you are in, in headspace and have refused to connect with your feelings. Um, I think that's very good too, because it's it's like we are all kind of on a spectrum of emotion and um, intellect. Not saying like some people are smarter than others, like in a in a bad way or whatever. But basically, like some people are more prone um, to using logic to inform their decisions more than others. And that's not, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing either way. Emotional intelligence is very important. Um, but what you're trying to say to people that I guess are very prone to the, if it's not logical, uh, <laughs> why does it matter kind of people? It's like, you know, like let's, let's, let's explore for a little. Let's, let's, let's try to use um, the tests in this book, which funny enough come across logic it's i don't know it's weird it's like the tests are presented in a logical way but yet they are guiding you to explore the heart as well um i found that very interesting that was i assume i assume that was uh your intention are you are you a very you're a very logical person right in general or <laughs> 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 Or, or the right. reader is in a is in a tough spot here, listening to somebody who's not very logical. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, you know, I, I think um, you also asked a very important question on one forty two. It says, "Does the heart value change over time?" I before I went into this little section right here, I was like, "Oh, I I need to know the answer to that." Um, it says. I don't know for sure, but for those who have followed up on, the heart value has remained the same over the years. We may have a different or better way to describe it over time, but the directional essence has remained the same. That is perhaps a mega test for the heart value. Does it remain the same if you were to ask the MAP-P a month later, six months later, a year later, or ten years later? I found that very interesting. Um, I guess it really goes back to is this part of your core? Mm, that's right. That's right. Um, so in the in the next section where you talk about the value of listening for the heart value, uh, the the part that I found very interesting was about halfway on one forty four. It says, in my view, compassion has become a misplaced concept. It is certainly helpful when getting people to stop hurting each other in overt, explicit ways. But in a society of ours that is not at war every day, the compassion we most often see is the shallow kind that is masking what we are really feeling, which is mere tolerance toward people we actually judge. It is all too easy to put myself on a pedestal and think, oh, I must be patient for, these, for those unevolved beings to reach where I'm at and to call that compassion. Our minds are far too smart to say that out loud but moral narcissism is real and dangerous. That sense of superiority where I am busy judging others in political, politically correct ways, this is as close to an awful life for myself as I can imagine. This is why finding our own heart value 
but not extending the process to others is so detrimental. What makes me think that I am above moral narcissism? What makes me think that I can protect myself from this malaise without any effort? Now, I read that whole section because I feel like it's very important um, because there are, I feel like a lot of individuals who are like, you know what, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. Um, I may not hate my work, but I may not love it, but I'm doing okay. Or my life is okay. Um, you know, my kids are okay. My, my relationships are okay. Everything is okay. So why, why even search for my heart value? And it's only, and what, what I got from this paragraph was very interesting because it's like, even if you're, 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 you think you're doing okay, you're not like explicitly hurting people. You're, you're not on, um, almost like the quote unquote bad side of the spectrum. Um, it's not what it could be. It's not, it's you, you're because you've not found your heart's value. Not only is your life not as great as it could be, or your, your joy is not as great as it could be, but because heart values manifest themselves outwardly as well, the people around you aren't even experiencing uh, what they could be experiencing in a positive way. Um, well, the, I'll, I'll make one edit to this, though. Sure. I'll, I'll say that this section comes with the value of listening for the heart value in in others is what it means, which means even if you've found your heart value, the, the, the this section is exploring why should you care about holding space for other people's heart values? Right. And this is saying that, hey, you know, why do you even care about this process? Right. I've described these principles. I've described these tests. It's a lot of work. Why do you want to do this work for anyone else? Once you're done with yourself, you move on. Right. And this is explaining why you should not move on. There is there is a lot of value in us practicing listening for the heart value of other people, because then you start to see them much, much greater than how they present themselves. You start to see what's really inside. And when you start to see what's really inside, you have respect, not tolerance, right? Compassion has no place in your life. What, what compassion are we talking about? There is just such acceptance and such regard. There's no need for compassion. Mm. And, and, the, and that gets into the, um, uh, the next part too, um, um, when I, where it says, uh, when I engage in this process authentically, I am changed by it. I walk in with an anonymous human and walk out having experienced the presence of a God of a particular value. I promise not to use God in this book. I will allow myself a little bit of blasphemy and define God with a lowercase g so as not to hurt any feelings and also keep to my commitment in a way that's consistent with counting. God of a value is someone who is 100% commitment to a particular numinous value. That simply means that no matter what state of hardship this individual is in, when an opportunity to deliver on this value comes to this person's life, the river of generosity will always overflow. And aphorism 4.8 says, find your heart value and you will find God slash or gold. Um, right, it, it's like we're all 
not only will you feel that joy also by helping someone find their their heart value, but they're going to feel that joy as well. And that man, that um, outward manifestation is just it, it's just a good thing for everyone. It's a good for uh, humanity if everyone is trying to find their heart value. Yeah, um, and and in in a sense, right? The the more I have gone back and looked at Indian philosophy in particular. You know, they, they say, oh, Indian philosophy, oh, so many multiplicity of gods. And then you realize, oh, these are lowercase gods, Gs, and they are representing a particular value. And by the way, they're not any less or more special than you because you represent a particular value. And, and to the degree that you are committed to that value is, is when society says, oh, this, is a, this person is like a god of that value. It's like you come near this person, you you feel that value, you receive that value in your life. And, and that's the opportunity for all of us. What is it that you are going to become a God of? And, and God simply means 100% commitment to that value. That's all it means in, in my definition. Remember, this book is has taken, you know, I've taken a very strong stance on secular humanism. We're redefining old religious terms in modern scientific ways that are that do not lose the meaning the essence of it so uh yeah when we're we're talking about um the hundred percent commitment um you know and finding your heart value and you will find gold or you'll find god um it reminds me of the section at the beginning of chapter four um where it says look they said at the narrow river of love that humans are. They didn't see that the narrow river connected to the ocean and turned humans into gods. And it seems, it seems as if that kind of brings everything full circle. Um, that was that the reason um, that you put this small piece of the poem at the beginning of chapter four? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like every time I write the chapters, I think about what is the essence and that's what makes it into the two line summary at the beginning of the chapter. So if you just read that, those two lines and you got it, you probably don't need to read the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't tell that to our more, um, uh, uh, logically, uh, minded, uh, re <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Be like, let's just skip the heart. Like, no, but, um, but yeah, so we're about to get into our anti-hero sto story, uh, the Chinese who valued Tibet. Um, and I would really love for you to tell me like why this story was particularly special for you, uh, why uh, it really uh, touched something within you, and um, to explain it to our listeners. You know, so this is a particularly important story for me because... I didn't learn about this special kind of listening by just being a gifted person or anything, anything like that. No, not at all. In fact, I learned it by being in a situation where I was faced with tremendous judgment sourced from my heart. Like I, I have this situation where, you know, and, and to be very specific, this is the story of the Dalai Lama and how the Chinese have treated him. And I have a lot of judgment towards the Chinese uh, government for doing this and, you know, very, uh, very fond feelings toward the Dalai Lama. So, so the story goes that, you know, how I got into this whole thing was 
when I was finishing my dissertation on values, my professor told me, hey, you know, what are some high impact applications of your work? And I'm like, high impact? What do you mean high impact? Can you define it? And he, and he said, well, could it help the world in the, in the conflict between China and Tibet? Like, well, my, my, my mind didn't even go there. But now that you say it, why don't I take a look at it? So, so I found the secretary, the former secretary to the Dalai Lama, and with great difficulty, I found the Chinese subject. And, and there's a lot of uh, danger in any Chinese national living anywhere in the world saying anything in public that seems critical of the government. And this is something that everybody should appreciate. So th this is because if they say something that is not liked, there are consequences back home for their families and relatives. So, so putting them in a spot of embarrassment or, or having them engage in a political dialogue, you want to think twice about it. Like it's, it's, not, it's not a good feeling for them. So I managed to find the Chinese subject by promising an anonymity, which I have kept. And in the course of that conversation, this person was very well read and gave me a good understanding of the other side, which, by the way, I was not sympathetic to. And so I had to work very, very hard to remove all judgment from my heart. And it was a process. And after reaching a point where we really, there was really not much more to discuss, what I did was I mapped the Dalai Lama's values in from the perspective of the Tibetan subject and then shared it with the Chinese subject. And, and he, he would respond to it. And then I would take it back to the Tibetan subject and get, get their response to the Chinese subject's response. And this went on a couple times. And at a, at a certain point, we, we were looking at the value uh, that Tibet has, you know, for China. And uh, sorry, at a certain point, we were looking at what the Han Chinese valued in Tibet. And this, this subject told me, the Chinese subject told me it is development. And I challenged it based on the rules that we've seen in this chapter and the previous chapter, and particularly Hartman's rules of, uh, hey, if it's intrinsic, it's defined on life itself. And extrinsic is, you know, you can justify it. It's, it's a means to an end. So I asked him, hey, why is development important? And he had a whole bunch of reasons. So then I said, well, then you, you cannot call that an intrinsic value. What, what do the Han Chinese intrinsically value in Tibet? And he finally got frustrated and he said, look, you've been talking to me for hours. Why don't you tell me what is the intrinsic value for the Han Chinese in Tibet? And in that moment, something happened. I, I was able to let go of all my judgment. And I don't know how it happened, but I found myself saying, the Chinese people value everyone in China. And that includes the Tibetans. They want the well-being of everyone in China. And that was such a powerful moment because the Chinese subject went silent for some time and he almost cried. And he said, look, you know, I, I feel understood. That's exactly right. And we have this phrase called Guo Jia, which means nation family. 
we see our nation as mm. one family. And if people say things about our nation, we feel that family interference. That's why the Chinese are very prickly about it. But the flip is also true. They do deeply care. And they just feel that they have been so misunderstood and there's no space in the conversation. And they're having a sort of a childish reaction there. Where they're like, okay, if you're not going to listen anyway, I'll show you how bad we can be with Tibet. Now, this is, I'm not saying that I've just reduced geopolitics to one conversation here. There are a lot of scholars right. who study this stuff for years and years and years. So I don't think I can generalize. But what if there was some truth to this conjecture that just by being so judgmental, we have shrunk the space for dialogue and acceptance, and we have actually accelerated the mean behavior that the Chinese show towards the Tibetans? What if we, the Western society here, has played a role in harming the very people we care about by not creating space? That was mm. a question I left with. And it was a profound question and a very disturbing question, actually, for me. That, wow, if I, if I can listen like this in every conversation, which is very, very difficult, if I could, then what would life look like? What if I truly tried to understand? It's, uh, it's remarkable because now I left with respect that, hey, they do mean well. It's just that they need a little bit of space. They need respect. And if you can give respect and space, things might be very different. We don't know. So th that conversation taught me the power of listening without judgment. Not easy. But that, that is why this conversation is so special, and this is why it's in the book. It was an authentic story of a deep struggle that I had. And I think also, like, it, it, it probably, um, just going back to the numinous values, it had that element of lightness afterwards. It had that element of inspiration afterwards, where you can, when you're having conversations with others in the future, especially conversations that aren't as heavy, um, or, or affect you as much, you're able to, to help them reach their heart value even quicker or, or, or better, or, you know, it's almost like you got stronger in a way. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. That's right. It's like, you know, I, I left with a deeper commitment that when I'm in this conversation, I will not judge. Mm. And that's just a prerequisite. You know, we, we think we won't judge, but we, our mind is always active. And it takes a lot of determination, courage, and practice to say, nope, I will not judge. Right. Wow. Well, that, that is, that, that's a beautiful story. Um, <clears throat> and I think um, as we get into um, on page 152, it, you know, I'm going to define the summary of terms as well as uh, say the questions for reflection for our listeners, um, just to reiterate. Um, so value is what is important to you and not social norms, metrics or mathematical objective functions. Heart value is a numinous value that connects us to meaning. God, lowercase g, is a hundred percent commitment to a specific value that connects to wholeness through a feeling of creative joy. And then we get to the questions for reflection. Number one, in your journaling, in your journaling practice or dialogue with trusted friends, what heart value is emergent for you? Number two, 
How was your experience of this inquiry from the lens of the principles or the tests? For each principle and test, write what emerged and use that to inquire deeper. Number three, how much guiding power does your heart value have? What alternatives emerge for you in decision situations when you bring that value front and center? And number four, where do you see the trap of moral narcissism in your life? How might you transform that into an opportunity for internal breakthroughs? That is great. That was a great chapter. Um, so please uh, come with us again for when we get into chapter five, which is titled The Habit, That Thing You Do. Thank you for listening.